0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Why don't we uh, bow for a word of prayer, and, uh, and let's just uh, intentionally say to the Lord we want to receive from Him today, that we're going to engage our minds and our emotions and our will and respond to him with our will our whole being in other words our soul uh, to what he has to say to us at this critical time in history what an opportunity we have to serve Jesus at this time in history and who knows we just might see him come back we might be that generation that sees him come back would that be something and uh, for all eternity we can Uh, We can say that to all the rest of them. Yeah, you didn't see them come back the second time. (laughs) All right, let's bow for prayer. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you for your great faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, as we sang, uh, to us in every circumstance. (laughs) No matter how bad and how bleak it looks, you're always there present with us. And uh, because you live, as we also sang, we can face tomorrow in fact because you live it changes everything for us and we have the opportunity to walk with you we have uh, we receive your desires and your ability the empowerment of your spirit to walk in this dark world and to experience just a hint of heaven And so we thank you that you help us in these things now Holy Spirit we ask that as we continue in this series on marriage and sexuality, we are asking you to speak, but we, we know you'll do your part. But we are now intentionally saying to you, we will engage our minds and our intellect, and uh, we will engage emotionally, and we will engage with our wills and respond as your spirit prompts us throughout the message. That's what we commit to you at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Sixty-six percent of men and 41 percent of women consume pornography on a monthly basis. Fifty percent of all internet traffic is related to sex. Barna research found that teens and young adults believe not recycling is more immoral than using pornography. So let's look at the effects of pornography on individuals and families and society. We'll begin by looking at the effects of uh, pornography on the brain, which will help us to understand then uh, the impact that it has on families as well as society. And it'll also help us to understand uh, when, uh, when we come to this matter of our freedom that the Scripture talks about. Using pornography actually reshapes how the human brain functions. Dr. William Struthers, in his book, Wired for Intimacy, says that when sexually stimulated, for men by sight, of course, dopamine is released into a region of the brain responsible for emotion and learning. We're going to talk a little bit about the brain here, just for a little bit. This gives a sharp focus of craving. I've got to have this, and I've got to have it now. Dopamine supplies a great sense of pleasure as well. So the next time the viewer gets the itch for more sexual gratification, small packets of dopamine are released in the brain saying, remember where you got your, last, uh, your fix last time? Go there and get it. In other words, a pathway, uh, a physical pathway is being made in the brain. In marriage, this push to return to the source of pleasure brings couples back together again and again in sexual intimacy, building a bond of love, as we talked about last week. But in the context of pornography, the effect is altogether different. Dopamine is also associated with attention and motivation, and can mobilize the body to fight or flee in dangerous situations. God has made it that way. It's a, it's a defense mechanism. It's a good thing. Something, an emergency takes place, and some dopamine is released in you, and you can, and, and you can fight or flee uh, quickly. However, continual masturbation to porn, pornography releases surge after surge of dopamine, giving the brain an unnatural high. At this point, the brain is going through the same thing that happens when you take drugs like cocaine, which also release dopamine. Eventually, the dopamine receptors and signals in the brain fatigue, leaving the viewer wanting more, but unable to reach a level of satisfaction. This is called desensitization. The viewer now becomes numb to things uh, once considered pleasurable, just like, drug, uh, j- just like a drug user is desensitized uh, to the levels of drugs they're taking, and they need more. To escape this uh, desensitization, men especially expand their pornographic tastes to more intense or novel or harder pornography, as they call it, hard porno- pornography, to get the same arousal. This downward spiral of desensitization impacts the prefrontal cortex as dopamine receptors degenerate in the brain. You see what's happening? According to Dr. Struthers, continued use of pornography literally erodes the prefrontal region of the brain responsible for our willpower. This region of the brain is where we do our abstract thinking, we make goals in that area, we solve problems, and, very importantly to this topic, we regulate behavior based on wisdom and morals. Normally, when emotions, impulses, and urges surge from the midbrain, the prefrontal lobes are supposed to weigh consequences and exercise executive control over those urges. Uh, and uh, and and then there, there's uh, and then that executive control is supposed to suppress the urges where necessary. But when this region is weakened by continual porn use, willpower is eroded, and there's nothing to stop the sense of craving for pornography coming from the midbrain. And the porn user's ability to do this is severely impaired. Do you see what's happening? As a result, the person experiences the urge, not just as a desire, but as an intense, consuming need, a drive, if you will. The heart begins to race, blood pressure rises, person is consumed by the thought of looking at pornography uh, or acting out sexually. Much of the, their energy in life is used up in this. I had a young man talk to me after the service yesterday uh, who's coming out of pornography, and has made tremendous progress, and he talked about the amount of energy expended uh, in his life, life energy expended in this. Of course, there's been uh, studies uh, done on that that confirm that. Neuroscientists call this phenomenon of lost willpower hyperfrontality. This person no longer has mastery over his passions, but is now a slave to them. This means that pornography is actually damaging the brains of its consumers, destroying willpower, and creating a deeply ingrained compulsion. Viewers are selling themselves into a voluntary slavery to their impulses. Interestingly, if sex is used for intimacy in marriage... Instead of destroying the prefrontal cortex of the brain, it actually strengthens it. Isn't that something? It knows the difference. Well, of course it does. God designed it that way. The stages of the downward spiral that we just described here were in the Bible all along. (laughs) In James chapter 1 it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, and what is the word? Desire. Say it again. By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to, and what's the word? Sin. Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There we see it. Ephesians 4, Paul talked about it too. He says, due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous or desensitized. In uh, Titus, uh, when he wrote to Titus in, in chapter 3, verse 3, he said... Uh, Paul said, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And there we have the enslavement piece of it. Well, uh, what it does in our brains, of course, then we act out and it affects everything around us. And I won't spend a great deal of time there, but I I have to just spend enough time to, to help us see the context here and how serious this is. The effects of pornography on family and society are great. It destroys families, number one. It invites comparison in marriage for physical looks and sexual performance. That brings with it a, a decrease in marital intimacy and sexual satisfaction. This often leads to infidelity, marital distress, and risk of divorce. Children are then affected uh, because of all the distress in the marriage, and all because of pornography. And many have attested to that. Here's the second thing. It does. Pornography desensitizes users to cruelty. In the 80s, Dr. Dolph Zillman and Dr. Jennings Bryant conducted research to see if exposure to pornography affected users' sexual beliefs beliefs, and views of women. They They were trying to see, does it change how you view things? What you believe. Listen to this. This is very, very important. They took... Uh, 80 young adult men and 80 young adult women, and they divided them into three subgroups and showed them five hours of media over a six-week period. There was, there was the massive exposure group, and that group, uh, the, one of the three groups, and it was shown 36 pornographic films. The intermediate exposure group was, uh, saw 18 pornographic films and 18 regular films. And then they had a last group, which was the no-exposure group. And they were shown 36 non-pornographic films. And then they, they asked them all sorts of questions, and they saw, uh, they saw how their beliefs changed. Uh, here was just one example. They asked them then to read a legal case about a man who raped a female hitchhiker, and then recommend and then they were asked to recommend a length of time for the rapist's prison sentence. The males in the no-exposure group, that's the lowest, they had no exposure to pornography over that six-week period, they suggested that the, uh, an average of 94 months. The males in the massive exposure group recommended only 50 months, about half the time. They cut it in half. The reason is because exposure to, to that, it changes the brain and make, it makes more more and more compulsive and stuff, but it actually begins to change your thinking and your belief systems. No wonder our world is in trouble, amen? amen. And that happened in just six weeks. Wow. Third, pornography disconnects users from real relationships. It trains men to be uh, digital voyeurs, to prefer looking at women more than seeking out genuine intimacy. And researchers have found that this is now shrinking the marriage pool for women. It's part of the reason we have uh, this, this whole issue Fourth, pornography victimizes women. Women in porn are often coerced, sexually abused, and forced to use drugs. They're often treated with violence and required to perform abusive sex acts. Fifth, it eroticizes children. Oh, and I could say so much in any of these categories, but particularly in this one. Dan Allender comments that our culture is showing signs of a pedophilic drift. That means a drift towards pedophilia. And the average age of entry into prostitution in the U.S. now is 13 to 14 years old. And the reason isn't just because the pimps are willing to take them in; It's because there is a demand for, for youthful kids to be used in sex. There's a huge demand. And it's a growing demand. The buyers like and want them young. Sex pornography... And uh, this is the last one that uh, I'll touch on this morning, but pornography fuels the demand in sex trafficking. 14,000 to 18,000 sex slaves are trafficked into the United States every single year. Ernie Allen, president of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, says (coughs) 100,000 children in the United States are used for commercial sexual exploitation. Steve Wagner, former director of the Human Trafficking Program at the U.S. uh, Department of Health and Human Services, estimates it as high as 250,000 kids. So uh, pornography is driving prostitution, which fuels the the demand then for sex trafficking. So think about that for a moment. Uh, Every time... Anyone engages in pornography, we're actually abetting sex trafficking. When I saw that some time ago when I was reading, uh, because I was in pornography as a young person as well, I went out into a park and I wept bitterly. I was so overcome. It's not just between you and the computer. It's not just about me and a computer. We are actually supporting something like that. Laura Letterer, advisor on trafficking at the U.S. State Department, says, and I quote, pornography is a brilliant social marketing campaign for commercial sexual exploitation. The plague of porno- pornography exacts a huge, and is exacting a huge human and societal cost. Parents, um, let me just uh, do an aside here and give you a little bit of warning about social media. And I've, I've got a website going up. It should be going up uh, right now, I think, uh, that, you can, uh, that you can take a look at. And this was, uh, this was sent to me by Tom Dick. I asked him for some info. You know, in my day, uh, if you wanted pornography, you had to ask for it. When I was a young person, you had to ask for it behind the, the counter. And then it came out from behind the counter and was placed on magazine racks. Along came the internet and made it accessible for everyone to consume privately and at home. And now social media brings it to you without you even asking for it. Fran was on Pinterest the other day, just the other day, you know, that's... uh, (laughs) You know, parties and food and recipes and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly, a pornographic picture popped up right on that. And she couldn't believe it. She came to me and she said, can you believe this? Uh, Instagram is a photo-sharing site. Many of your youth are involved on in this particular program uh, or social media. There's tons of porn on this one. I'm not saying they're all watching porn on this because if you follow the right group you'll be you won't get into it but there is tons of porn in this one and there's no parental controls for this one and lots of kids are on instagram here's another one snapchat Uh, very popular and it's gaining momentum photos are sent with an expiration that uh, disappears forever uh, an expiration time so you can it, it can go for about two minutes and then it disappears and this is now being used for sexting nude photos of themselves. Young people are using it for that. However, these photos are saved uh, at what they discovered a couple years ago is that actually these photos are not disappearing from the servers at Snapchat. They have them. So it's not what it seems. And parents, I would suggest, I would highly recommend that you see your youth pastors about these kinds of things. Tom Dick is very knowledgeable in this. And there's Dan Hungerford and Brad Lice for more on this, but I want to continue now. <laughs> so what's required for freedom? Is there any good news? Not only does pornography, uh, uh, pornography affect our brains, our families, and society, Jesus warned that lustful behaviors would also affect where we would spend eternity. He said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent... That's pornography, at the very least. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He was using hyperbole when he was talking about the, you know, rip rip the eye out of your eye socket. We use hyperbole as a figure of speech all the time. But he wasn't using hyperbole when he said where you would end up. Uh, where that lifestyle ends up. But, Jesus, uh, but God had a solution. and <laughs> Aren't you glad about that? John chapter 8 says, uh, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Well, we talked about that already. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you, what? Free, Free you will be free indeed. Now that's what we want. Amen? There's a lot of people looking to be free, not just inside the church, but outside the church as well. And we see that our hope is that the Son, who is Jesus, can set us free. Jesus said that about himself. So how does that come about? How can we grow in freedom or become free or be set free? Well, first, it begins, and there's four pieces that I'm going to share with you. Uh, one might uh, surprise you a little bit, but the first one, it begins with confession and repentance. If we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, God does forgive us our sins. Would you agree with that? Yes. yes absolutely. No doubt about that whatsoever. Now, here's what we mean by confession and repentance. It's not, it's, it's not just saying, sorry, that's not what we're talking about. Repentance is something that happens with our whole being, our mind. It's an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong, and we agree with God on that. It affects our emotion, it's a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. Hatred is an emotion. And and it affects our will. It's a decision to renounce and turn from the sin to live in obedience to Jesus and His Word. Mere sorrow for one's actions or the consequences of sin, or remorse for that, does not necessarily constitute genuine repentance uh, unless it is accompanied by a sincere decision to forsake it, unless the will is involved in it, say, I'm, turn- I'm turning from that and I'm, I'm receiving Jesus' forgiveness. I repent. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 addresses that. Paul addressed that. He said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Isn't that amazing? Whereas worldly grief... So there's two griefs there, godly grief and worldly grief, produces what? Death. A worldly grief may involve great sorrow for one's actions or consequences, and perhaps even fear of punishment, but there is no renouncement of sin or a commitment to forsake it in one's life. So Hebrews 12 says, uh, speaking of Esau, uh, is a good example of somebody who had a worldly grief and not a godly grief. It says, for you know that afterward when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau wept over the consequences of his actions. He lost his birthright and all of that, and the inheritance. But he did not truly repent. And if you look at his life after that, you can see it. But when we are truly repentant, God is ready and quick to forgive, and, uh, and I'm glad for that, aren't you? Amen. Otherwise, I'd be in serious trouble. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, why don't you read that, the rest of it with me, all right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news? Turn turn to somebody next to you and say, that is good news. (laughs) It is good news. However, that's not all you will need to gain your freedom. You'll also need an overcoming struggle. An overcoming struggle. When we get saved and repent, and this will surprise a few people, When we get saved and repent, God begins a process of setting us free from sin, which we call, it has a special name for it in the Bible, called sanctification. But that's what it means. Immediately, God gives us the desire and the ability to be free. Philippians 2.13, desire and empowerment. Uh, Though He doesn't take away the sinful nature with all its impulses towards sin, So it's the beginning of the sanctification process, the beginning of setting free, in that we now have desire and ability, but we still have that that sin nature, which is why we experience this continuing struggle in our lives. Even the Apostle Paul continued to struggle against sin impulses. He said in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have any of you experienced that? Okay, a few of you have. Yes, I certainly have. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, the sin nature that causes those impulses is still there. Remember that Paul is speaking to believers here, not unbelievers. He's writing to the Christians at Rome about this. And the Apostle John also affirmed the continuing struggle with sin when he said uh, if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In fact, in verse 10 he repeats almost word for word that same thing again. In case we didn't get it the first time. So, God forgives our sins but he doesn't necessarily give us full freedom from the struggle against the sin impulse in our area of weakness. Now, Let's say you've been addicted to pornography or alcohol or something else, some other vice or sin, and now you full out repent like we talked about, okay? It's just the full out thing, and you repent. Maybe even have uh, some godly grief going with it and tears and all the rest. Now, without a shadow of a doubt, God hears and forgives your repentance, correct? We, We got that right. And he does it instantly. However, the very next day, or perhaps the very next hour, you will discover that he hasn't necessarily taken away the impulse, sinful impulse. Now, sometimes he just takes it away in a moment and that's it, forever. And people report that. Last night I had a woman, dear woman, I won't name her, she came to me and she said, yeah, I was one of the, I'm one of those. I, uh, God immediately delivered me from smoking and from bad, foul language immediately. Oh, that's merciful and gracious. Would you not agree? No struggle there, just gone. Don't you wish everything was just gone? Oh, I do. Oh, my goodness. But what the person isn't telling you is that they are still struggling with some other sinful impulse hidden in their lives scripture very clearly tells us that we don't get the full freedom until we die. So there's other. Well, it, may be, it could still be sexual. It could be anger or control, manipulation, greed, submission, jealousy, envy, selfish ambition, unforgiveness, pride of some kind. Uh, it's still there. So there's a greater measure of freedom, but the person isn't entirely free. But we want to grow in our freedom, don't we? Church, we do. God wants you to partner with him in winning your freedom. Romans 8 verse 13 says, For if you live according to flesh, you will die. You will what? Yeah, the spiral goes down to death. And we see where it ends up, Jesus said. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? Partner, we see a partnership there. Mm-hmm. By the Spirit... And you put uh, to death the deeds of the body. It's a partnership with God to, to kill those impulses and to win your freedom. You can't win your freedom by sitting back passively. Church, did you get that? You cannot just do this and win your freedom from sin. It has to be done. You have to participate in it but thank God he gives you <laughs> the Holy Spirit to go with it. The living Christ in the Spirit of Christ goes with you. We sang, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That's why you can face your struggle. Because he lives, he's given you resurrection power to do it. Any amens anywhere. Amen. I'm gonna get a recording, and anytime I'm really going at it, I'm just gonna press that. <laughs> it's gonna all chorus of amens. Amen. (laughs) Our souls will finally be set free from sin at death, and our bodies will be sanctified, believe it or not, at Jesus' return. That's what happens. Set free. So why doesn't God just sanctify and just set us fully free now? Why do we have to participate in it? Why the struggle? Reason number one. So you'll learn to hate your sin. This is no longer just grief for the consequence of sin. As Paul had been struggling against his sin nature, he cried out, he said, Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from the body of death? God wants us to get to the place where we hate sin. Hate our sin. Paul is so done with his sin and his sin nature, he has come to hate it. And He's so desperately God wants us so desperately, wants to be, uh, wants us to be free from, bo- uh, from both, and Paul longed for that, and he cried out for it. And as we draw closer to the Lord in our walk with him, our love for him, a- and our love for him, we hate sin more. Um, next week I'll probably tell you something about what Fran and I did, but it was sinful. And uh, later, you know, the Bible says it's wrong, so we confessed it. But much later, we came to hate the sin like, hate it with a passion. It happened at Biloxi, at a place called Biloxi on, on the uh, Gulf of Mexico. But that's for next week. Reason number two. So you'll grow in the fear of the Lord. We live in a time in history when we have to understand before we obey. In other words, God, if you say something and we don't understand the rationale behind it, it and it doesn't make sense to us, then we won't obey that's how a lot of Christians do it, and, and I, I, I'm one of you, <laughs> okay? And that's precisely the attitude that King Saul had when he disobeyed God and he didn't understand. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. Through the fear of the Lord, a man, what, avoids, avoids evil whether he understands it or not. So God allows consequences and discipline and struggle in our lives. By the way, that's part of His sanctifying work in our life. When He disciplines, when He allows consequences and struggle in our lives so that we will grow in the fear of the Lord and refrain from sin. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, When we are judged or disciplined by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I was 24 years old when I fully committed my life to Jesus because... Uh, our oldest son had just been born, Chris, had just been born a few months earlier, and God used that to get me back on track. And, uh, um, and so at age 26, God called me into ministry. I was, I was flying at the time. God called me into ministry. I was still flying. But God wanted me to already to begin to grow and uh, begin to uh, be set free from some of the sins that were besetting me. So one day, as I was praying, he reminded me of how I had stolen from my employer when I was about 17 or 18 years old. And every time I would go to prayer, he would bring that up. This went on for days and then weeks. It might have even gone months. I don't know. I can still see myself on a flight. as this, uh, <laughs> we, we, we left when it was dark, and uh, I was looking out the Out the aircraft window uh, in the cockpit, and I can still remember the sun was just barely coming up, and the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and said, You've got to deal with that theft eight years before. And you gotta, uh, you gotta, (laughs) every time I tried to forget it, I tried to put it away. I thought, you know, if I just dismiss it, 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 it'll go, it wouldn't go away. And, uh, Finally, uh, I knew what I was going to have to do. I, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed, I had to tell my wife because I was going to have to write out a check. And we didn't have, I mean, in fact, this carried over as I went uh, to, uh, to Bible college in southern Ontario, just right at the beginning when I was starting there. So over a period of, you know, a few weeks or, or months. And um, finally, I sat down with Fran and I just said, I have to admit something to you this is what i've done and god will not let me go on this thing he will not answer my prayers he will not let me fellowship with him i can't stand it anymore i have to deal with it and i was so embarrassed and ashamed and i wrote out a check and wrote a letter to my employer uh, here in steinbach um and uh At the same time, at roughly that same time, he began to work in me about lying. But, but you know, after I mean, I'm still sensitive to that stealing thing. (laughs) I don't want to steal because I know he'd make me stand up here on this stage and tell you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have fellowship with him, and I can't handle that. And uh, at the same time, he was dealing with me about lying. And I would lie because of fear of man. And sometimes to embellish, to make myself look better. Other times to uh, prevent a disaster from happening. I'd lie. So I was at Bible college preparing for ministry. Can you believe that? And the secretary of the school asked me a a simple, easy little question. It was nothing writing on it. And I lied. And the minute I did it, I went, no, why did I do that? I know what's going to happen. But I didn't want to own up to it right there. I was hoping that if I went home, I could just forget about it and God wouldn't bring it up. But sure enough, he brought it up every morning. There it was. So, I had to do it again. Back to stand in front of her, red faced, embarrassed beyond belief. I had to tell her that I lied. This happened several times and I quit lying. I'm not saying that I've never told a lie since then, but that was a pattern in my life. These were patterns, and God broke those patterns through a fear of the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very important. So those times not only grew the fear of the Lord to help me over, this, over those sins, the sins of theft and lying, the fear of the Lord then began to help me be obedient in all areas. I knew he was going to deal with me. (laughs) So uh, the struggle helps us to grow in the fear of the Lord. Reason number three. So you'll restore restore rather than condemn others. Why does he allow struggle? Why does he want us to be part of it? Uh, Because it changes us. It does something to us in the struggle that if he just takes it away, if he took all our sins away, it wouldn't produce these other peaceful fruits of righteousness in us. So... Um, we're often scolded with what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Remember, he said, Judge not that you uh, you be not judged, for with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, many, and uh, culture in particular, take this to mean that we shouldn't judge viewpoints as true or false, right or wrong, but they're mistaken. Of course, we shouldn't be judgmental if by judge we mean to damn the other person to hell. That we shouldn't do. No. There's another kind that I'll tell you in just a moment, but just hang on. Jesus forbade, uh, forbade such uh, a thing because it falls within God's purview or dom- domain or prerogative to, to judge other people in, the ter- in terms of eternity. However, Jesus himself taught that there is a different type of judging, which is our job in John chapter 7. So there's Matthew 7, yes, the one that you hear always quoted, but there's John chapter 7 too. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We are supposed to judge. So on one hand, we're not supposed to in the condemning way, but in the other sense, we are supposed to judge. So what is he talking about there? By this sense of judging, Jesus is certainly referring to the making of an accurate discernment. And there's many examples in which Jesus calls us to discern. For example, he tells us to forgive others, but in order to do that, you actually have to first judge that somebody has done something wrong to you in the first place. True? He tells us to resist temptation and not to do evil, but this requires judging that something is right and something is wrong. He tells us, he calls us to be aware of false prophets, but surely that means that then you have to judge that one is right and one is wrong. There's false prophets and there's true prophets. Even the world knows that we have to judge in one sense. They they have moral judgment. They, They judge that rape is wrong. They judge that murder is wrong, that child abuse is wrong. So there is a type of judging that we are supposed to do. But we're not to be harsh, and this was not, remember I said before, not only are we not to condemn, but we're also not to be harsh or have a condescending attitude of prideful superiority towards others struggling with sin. And we see how Jesus balanced these two types of judging when the religious leaders wanted to condemn a woman caught in adultery. And and they brought her... (laughs) hoping he would say uh, she should be stoned. But Jesus said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, when the leaders heard that, they began to slink away. And Jesus looked at her, and then he said these famous words. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In this one verse, we see Jesus not judging, in the sense of condemning, eternity and that, that kind of thing, judging. Yet he was judging her adultery as sinful, hence, go and sin no more. John said, the Apostle John said, that when Jesus came the first time, he came, he didn't come to what? Condemn the world, but to save, save the world. But he is coming back a second time, and then he will judge in that other sense. But he says, that's not our job. (laughs) And our job is to do what he did. So in the one sense, we do not condemn them, and we do not look at them with a harsh, uh, superior kind of a feeling, a prideful feeling of superiority. But at the same time, we're supposed to judge that something is right or wrong, sin or not sin. So our, our world, our culture is moving the lines on marriage and sexuality, and Jesus says, you've got to judge something by the standard that I have here in the Bible. God's law hasn't changed. He's not moving the line, whether the world moves it or not, and he will judge one day in that sense. However, that's not my point. Now is the time of salvation. He doesn't judge in that sense now, but he still calls a sin a sin. And he wants us to follow his example. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. So on the one hand, we are saying it's a sin or we wouldn't be restoring them. Why would you restore somebody to what they're supposed to be if you're not judging it? But on the other hand, we're not supposed to be harsh. We're supposed to be gentle and loving and kind about how we restore them. Is that correct? And here's what I'm saying about all this. Our own struggles breed humility. See, if if I just get saved and all my... Struggles are gone. (laughs) I walk around prideful. (laughs) What's the matter with you sinners over there? You know? But when I recognize that I have my own struggles, then it's one struggler helping another struggler. It breeds a humility so that many can be reached for Jesus. Amen? Reason number four why God allows you to struggle. So you'll learn to go to him and depend on him. In his infinite wisdom, God chose this method because he knew it would keep us coming back to him again and again. And this is the complete antithesis of self-sufficiency and independence. God wants us to press into him. And when you have a struggle, doesn't it make you press into him? Well, some don't. But if you have no struggles, very few people without any struggle, if there is such a thing, really press into God. And that was the original sin in the garden. Self-sufficiency and independence. Reason number five. So we'll be truly grateful for eternity. I've been meditating on this stuff for some time and this is amazing. Forever we're going to know how much we need God. The struggle helps cause that. I mean, it's such an experiential thing. Forever we'll know how much we need God. Forever we'll appreciate and praise him for finally making us holy. Isn't that true? You know, uh, there's a little saying that says, he who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. Here, I'll say it again. He who is forgiven much loves much. But guess what? There's another part to it. He who loves much praises much. And people who, have, who really get, <laughs> because they're strong, that they've been forgiven much will love him. And those who really love him will praise him for all eternity. will appreciate him. And forever will desire, will desire, will desire to be holy. <laughs> there will never be this thing of, where's the line? <laughs> no, it won't be there. We, we, we won't even see the line. We won't want it. Reason number six. It acts as a warning to others. And, you know, I don't have time to expand on a lot of these now. I'm just throwing them out. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira did that. Seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin and what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they fell over dead because they're lying to the Holy Spirit acted as a warning to others in great fear. Fear of the Lord came upon the churches. Number seven, and lastly, so you'll long for heaven. God in heaven. Doesn't the struggle finally just, uh, you know, my wife Fran, she said something the other day that really, um, it surprised me that she said it on the one hand in a good way and and made me uh, happy. She said, you know, there's nothing I want in this world anymore. nothing I want here anymore. That's what begins to happen. A longing. A longing for Jesus face to face and a longing for heaven. Enough of the struggle already. And it creates that. And what we just talked about now answers a very important question that I sometimes hear People say, and I've uh, heard people wonder about. And the question is this: Can't I just sin and then ask for forgiveness? You know, like uh, I, I want, I, 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 you know, I want the, I want that other man. So I'm going to leave my, uh, I'm gonna leave my husband because I want that other man, and I know it's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong, but. I'm going to do it, and then I'll just ask for forgiveness. What we just talked about answers that question. Well, yes, you can if you actually would be at some point truly repentant for what you're doing there. However, there would be consequences, and there would be a tremendous struggle that would come with it. Sin never pays. Brothers and sisters in Christ, never pays, church, does it? Never. Never pays. So God will leave some struggle in your life to grow you. However, he doesn't leave you alone in your struggle. He goes with you. Amen? He doesn't leave you without hope in your struggle. He doesn't leave you without a means to overcome your struggle. He's preparing you and I for heaven. That's what he's doing. He's preparing us for eternity. That's what's going on. And if in your struggle you are doing it less and less, you are overcoming, you will see victory. Keep pressing. Don't quit now. You're on the right track. So God's forgiveness comes immediately, but God's freedom generally comes over time, which leads us to the third thing that's required, experiential love of Christ. The most rapturous love between a man and a woman is only a hint of what that, the experiential love of Christ is actually going to be like. And this, knowing that helps us. That's not what will bring you Sex is not what's going to bring you ultimate fulfillment. Never has, never will. Um, The only meeting Jesus face-to-face will fill that emptiness which was created by sin when we lost our unbroken fellowship with him. But we are not simply called to wait for an experience of Christ's full love now or in the future. We're to experience it now. We can have some of it now already. And for you to be able to overcome those temptations and that struggle and win some freedom, you have to begin to experience Christ's love now because that's where true fulfillment actually is found. And when you find that fulfillment, it, serve, it, it replaces the desire for that kind of fulfillment. Do you see that? So Paul said... That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, intellectual knowledge, moving for experiential. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God, and this is available through prayer. And lastly, the fourth thing, not only true repentance and overcoming struggle by the Holy Spirit, second, not only the experiential love of Christ, finally, you will need the church. You will not walk in any sort of victory without doing so in, in church community. The church is Christ's body, and he designed it that you can't do the Christian life without it, period. First Corinthians 12 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Show me a Christian Who's, walked, uh, who's living apart from the church, and I'll show you a Christian who's defeated. Every single time without fail, unless they've been imprisoned as, you know, uh, f- and being persecuted, then Jesus sometimes shows up in their cells and does that, and, and he, he fills in the blanks. But other than that, there's no exception. You cannot receive all the grace you need to walk with God and fulfill his desires for you apart from his body. And that's why Hebrews says, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. you got to do it with one another. Which is why the scripture says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is but encouraging one another as you see the day approaching. You can't grow in your sanctification, winning your freedom by simply attending weekend services at Southland. You have to get into small group community in a cell. That's where we confess to each other. That's where we pray over one another. That's where we encourage one another. Amen? And you will not get all the grace all by yourself. A few years ago, <laughs> I thought I could do it by myself. Uh, actually, it's maybe 10 years ago now. I was learning about personal prayer ministry and, you know, how to be set free in different things, and there is. You can, you can get healing from woundedness and all those kinds of things. It's all part of this. So I was learning these things and I was doing it by myself <laughs> because I, I had to learn how to do it so I could help, you know, uh, so, so we could do it in the church. So I was doing it every day in, in my office and every day I was winning more freedom, a, a greater measure of freedom as I was, I was putting to death the deeds done in the body. And I'd ask the Lord, what's, what's the next one we're, <laughs> we're going to work on? And then one day he said, um, this area. I said, okay, good, let's, let's deal with it. And he said, yeah, we'll deal with it as soon as you tell Fran. I said, Fran, what has she got to do with it? Uh, He said, uh, everything. And you're not going to get any freedom in here until you tell Fran. I said, I'm the pastor, Lord, at Southland. Are you telling me, I have to tell, yes, you have to tell Fran. And he wouldn't budge on it. So finally, Fran came to work. I said, Fran, would you please come in here? my office. She said, yeah, what do you want to talk about? (laughs) I mumbled some things. She said, what? What did you say? Oh, I'm supposed to tell you this. You what? You see, God will not allow, and I couldn't bypass it. You can attend for 30 years at Southland. And not be set free just by attending. Until you get into small community and do it as a body. You will, not, you will not win a measure of your freedom. And become what God wants you to become. You need the church. Amen? This is how I want to close. Perhaps somebody uh, was invited or perhaps he just walked in. You decided to come visit us today, and maybe you don't know Jesus. <laughs> That's where it starts, repentance, remember? He, uh, he will start you on that journey. He will give you a measure of freedom to begin with, and he will give you a love and a desire for holiness. He will give you the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit because he lives. He's still living. But you have to repent of your sin. So I'm going to lead you in a little prayer If you want to repent, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you could be set free for eternity. Is that a wonderful promise? That you could spend eternity with him in heaven. If you continue down the path you're going, Jesus said you're going to end up in hell. He said that. I didn't. I'm quoting him but you can be forgiven that's a merciful god. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. Church, would you follow me in this prayer? Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. I I now understand the seriousness of sin. And Lord, I realize that I've offended you. And my relationship with you has been broken. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins to reconcile me back to God. I repent of my sin. And I turn from it. And I ask you to grow me in freedom. Now, if you're here as a believer and you've been struggling in some area or you've been involved and uh, you need to recommit your struggle to God, I just want you to silently in your heart Follow me in this prayer. Dear God, I'm I'm deeply convicted, and I've given up. Or I just bought into the cultural lie that it's all okay. We're made like this. I realize now that you're calling me back to purity and holiness. Please forgive me. And God, I intend to unite with this body and with you in order to grow in the freedom that you so graciously offer me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Selfland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.